Gyro Nation Metal. Welcome back, everyone. This is Jeff with Gyro Nation Metal. Primordial is an Irish black and folk metal band formed in 1991, joined by Alan Averill when he was just 16 years old. Alan is one of three original members. He has been and is still a member of many other bands, Dread Sovereign, The Nest, and Twilight of the Gods, to name a few. Primordial has been one of Ireland's longest active metal bands, which has allowed them to gain and maintain a healthy global following. Alan is not only a talented musician, but also writes for Zero Tolerance magazine and hosts the Agitators Anonymous podcast. Alan, it's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah. How you doing, man? All right. Fantastic. I guess we can just jump into things uh, since we're here to talk about music and kind of your involvement in the community. Um, music's been a huge part of your life, to say the least. So just at 16, what made you join a band? And did you ever think you'd be in the same band over 30 years later? Um, well, the first band I had, I was about 12 or 13. Um, we were called like Perennial Slaughter or something. That was about 1988, maybe. Not really a band band. We, we Four of us stood together in a room and tried to play Venom and Ramon songs. Um, I, I don't know. I always wanted to be in a band or um, that was my sort of teenage aspiration or even pre-adolescent uh, aspiration. Um, and then basically we had this one record shop in Dublin we, where we grew up um, called The Sound Cellar. And one day... It was about 91, and there was a whole bunch of us at the same age starting out in bands together, starting out our, um, I guess, trading tapes, hanging out and beginning to form bands amongst each other. And I just saw this as my opportunity to try and do the same thing. And so I was the only person who answered the ad that was in the shop, and that was in the summer of 1991. And the rest, as they say, as the cliche goes, is history. So that was August the 31st or 30th. 1991. I know that because it was a week after my birthday of being 16. And it just so happened that however way through hook or by crook or however way they say it, um, here we are 30 years later, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it was just a common thing for, you know, teenagers back then to want to be in a band and make music and be in a dirty, scuzzy, sweaty, stinky room and trying to just, you know, um, forge their kind of uh, teenage aspirations uh, on things. But uh, yeah, and then, you know, you like, 10 years goes by and then 20 and you just sort of keep going. And and people expect us to be older than we are. We're not actually as old as maybe some people think we are <laughs> because we started when we were 14, 15 and 16. So, mm-hmm. you know, for somebody who says that they're self-admittedly not very patient, it seems like it takes a lot of patience to be in the same band with few of the same members for that long. Oh, I'm sure it would require a lot of patience to be in a band with me. <laughs> um, the thing the thing that's different about Primordial is that compared to other bands' rehearsals, well, I would drop in another band's rehearsals and it would be more like a little party, you know, drinking beer, smoking weed or something. Primordial wasn't like that at all, like at all. We be- we weren't friends really to start with. We became friends, um, but it was not that atmosphere at all. It was quite serious and very much about writing songs. We didn't We didn't hang out together. Um, we weren't drinking buddies. We weren't, let's say this, we weren't friends to fall out. We became friends over the years, of course, and close friends. And we, you know, to this day, we still, we're not a band who has little cliques or, you know, if we have fights and arguments, which you still do, they're between us and they're very open. Um, you know, we still have big confrontations, but we don't, like, there's no, there's no grudges in Primordial, there's no cliques and we still actually have a great time going away together, even after 30 years, you know, traveling, playing gigs and stuff. Like there's a really, you know, there's a good sort of, you need your band to have sometimes a little bit of a us against the world kind of gang vibe sometimes, which it, it's not overly like that. I'm not saying Primordial's like Watain or something, but definitely 
there's no um, everything kind of between us is more or less out in the open. And I think that's because Pomodio wasn't started as a a kind of antidote to boredom. Um, it wasn't where we went to smoke weed and drink beer or anything like that. It was quite serious. And it was um, a quite serious way of dealing with, I suppose, the inner city frustrations of growing up in a quite poor and deprived Dublin. And so we're kind of matter of fact dudes. Um, we're not, we were not incumbent rock stars or um, we didn't have egos that were waiting to be amplified by being in a band with a modicum of success. You know what I mean? So we're quite down to earth kind of people, which I suppose is what people expect of the Irish. So I suppose we revert to type. So that's a rather long answer, but you know what I mean? Oh, that's perfect. And would you say that this passion and as well as the open communication has lent itself well to your guys' success? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, within the last 10 years, Primordial is still at a fist fight at the side of the road or giving each other a fucking slap or a punch or a fuck you or, you know, we've, we are those people as well, which is the cliche being Irish. But at the same time, there's never a grudge or a, it's a very Irish thing. I, I sense without keeping, having mentioned that five times already to lay it on the table and then and not, you know, hold a grudge or oh no, that maybe that's not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a healthy situation when you can um, air your grievances, knowing that it's not going to come back. Uh, on some level, you know, three months later or six months later or a year or two later. Um, but Primordial doesn't really, because we never sort of uh, uh, overstayed our welcome with each other as people in the sense that we weren't drinking buddies to fall out when someone got had to move to the burbs and whatever. Like, if there's nothing to do, we could go months and months without seeing each other, you know? So we didn't, um, we didn't kind of overstay our welcome with each other. We all have our other lives and things going on. Um, Primordial is just is like an institution in our lives, um, but it's it's an institution that you can, if you're Kieran and you've you know you've got your kids and you've got your all your work stuff and that you can put it down for four months if you want, and there might be no gigs. Like I know that after next week in Canada, there's no gigs for maybe five months. So we'll try and write some songs, but if we just made an album, and there wasn't songs to write, we wouldn't do anything. So, I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to describe. Every band is their own little kind of ecosystem. Um, Ours is just one that never really had a plan or didn't have big plans. We weren't plotting and, you know, trying to figure out how to get bigger or how to do this or how to do that or the other. It just sort of um, materialized quite uh, naturally, I suppose. Hmm. So not really like a roadmap, just kind of plugging away with what you guys were working on at the time. I mean, we, you know, we knew bands from the same era as us who would be like, yeah, we're planning this album here, this album here, this one's going to have more back thrash on it this will be more speed metal this will be more blah blah then we're going to go out and you know and all the aesthetics and they had a plan of how to get big and how to do this that, and the other and we never had any plan really beyond making one album after we made a demo we were quite serious but we didn't have like when we would meet our not you know scandinavian counterparts in the early let's say mid to late 90s we'd play the odd gig here and there abroad with them and they all seemed to have a big plan we never really had any plan um, and I guess that's why maybe the music sounds, um, it's easier for it to work out like this when you're from an island, I think, because we were unable to, when we were really young, to maybe like trade a gig. If you were in Belgium or Holland or Germany, you could trade gigs with another band in a youth hall at the weekend. And, you know, um, Asics could probably drive across the border to play somewhere when they're 92 or 94, 95. And you learn 
you know, you learn stuff from other um, kind of scenes that you get exposed to. Whereas where you, when you're stuck on an island, um, you kind of evolve, um, you kind of evolve independently in a way. So there's a specific, there's a sort of specific, I think, Irish kind of sound attitude style, that kind of thing. And it, it, it comes from really the, the fact that um, art of it is not only cultural, geographical, but that you can't just, um, you know, cross, a, uh, you know, drive across, say, to plain London if you're in Dublin. You got to get on a plane, and in 1995, that wasn't quite so easy as Ryanair made it become, you know. Yeah, exactly. So you kind of grow, you kind of mature in isolation, sort of, or grow up in isolation. So when you guys started out, what was the uh, metal scene in Ireland like? Um, I, you know, it's a uh, Ireland is a weird place. Um, if you said to me, hey. Can you recommend to me a classic demo from the eighties or the nine? You know the eighties. Like, is the, what's the missing link? The classic speed metal record or proto black metal record or death metal record from eighty eight from Ireland. Um, there sadly isn't any. Um, I don't know what it is about Ireland in the nineteen eighties, but we're in the country that's beside, you know, the the UK, which is belching out everything from you know Venom to Joy Division to the Cure to the Smiths to whatever, and we don't really have versions of those bands. Um, and I, I think if I was to, I would be um, lacking in some real critical analysis if I was to just kind of go, ah, yeah, we were doing our own thing, whatever. But there's some serious things missing from Irish music. There's no Irish Venom. There's no Irish Misfits. There's no Irish Black Flag. There's no Irish Joy of it. There's whatever is going on in Ireland in the 1980s. It, for some reason, maybe it's because of so many people emigrated, but the movers and shakers in the Irish music industry saw what you two were doing and tried to follow everyone followed you two out the door. So there's no like Irish torment or there's no Satan and studs and nails and spikes or some demo that I would go, Oh, this is the cult band that inspired us. We actually actively thought they were all shit. The bands that we saw, there was a few thrash bands, you know, there was cursed, um, working El Moral crusade and, uh, you know, asphyxia and stuff who were genuinely good, but none of them really got to make records. There's an awful compilation called green metal from like 87. And if anybody wants to track it down it's on YouTube, listen to that and tell me it's not fucking dreadful. Like there's bands still playing like traditional jigs and reels. There's literally there's no Satan, no Slayer, no Rebellion, no Violence, no Fuck You. Um, and that's what we brought. Us, Abaddon Incarnate, Crypt, Minus Tear Through Be, I came Crook on, um, Fifth Dominion, um, Morphosis. Um, there's around 91, a whole lot of bands began to coalesce and form, um, and most of them are still going now. And we were the first bands who kind of went, you know, fuck whatever this is from the 1980s. We were into tape trading and underground stuff and zines and making demos. And we were the sort of, um, along with a whole bunch of other bands, the kind of scene that formed the basis for this sort of real first Irish underground kind of scene. Because for whatever was going on in the 1980s, um, like I said, there's no Irish Mephisto. No Irish Rotting Christ, no Irish Masters Hammer. And maybe I'm asking for too much, but I don't think so. I used to go on this website called The Boneyard, which was um, like basically um, some guy in America had uploaded thousands of obscure records and you could do it by country. And you could put in, like say, I don't know, go like um, Columbia, Parabellum, and you'd get, or you'd get uh, Peruvian speed metal from 84, like nasty stuff, great stuff. Or, you know, Mexican stuff from 87 and, and then you'd go Ireland and it'd be like four records. And I'd know all four of them and it'd just be like sub thin Lizzy rubbish. And you go, where the fuck is the Satan? Where's the rebellion? Where's the fuck you? Because we have all of the ingredients. You know, you have a 
you have a poor country which has been ravaged by migration. You have oppression by the uh, you know church and state. Um, all the ingredients are there for the most angry anarcho DB punk band you've ever heard. But there is no Irish discharge. I so whatever that whatever whatever is missing from Irish metal, we along with a whole bunch of other bands brought um, our own version of that in 1991, 92. It's like we were six or seven years behind an awful lot of other countries. So um, it's a rather long answer to your question, but the Irish metal scene was small, and but everyone was pretty close in it, and all the, a, lot of, a lot of the people who were around then are still within it now, you know, um, such as ourselves. Uh, you know, like uh, bands play here and they have healthy crowds, and, you know, now, you know, you've got your, over the last 20, 30 years, you know, you've had your male mortars, your morning beloveds, and there's some good new crop of bands coming up, but... You know, my my moment was in that sort of ninety one to two thousand one sort of era, um, being you know. But um, it, it's interesting. I don't know what it is about Irish eighties counterculture that it seems so anemic. Lots of people don't like me saying things like that. But I just go, well, show me the record that I'm missing. Where's the Irish discharge? Ain't one. Anyway. Well, I mean, somebody has to be a pioneer, right? So you might as well do it yourself if there's not already a scene. It feels like that, yeah. I mean, we—I remember playing in '91, wearing like leather and bullets and, you know, paint and stuff. And there, there wasn't a proto band from '87 or '88 who inspired us. I mean, obviously foreign bands, but there's nobody in Ireland who we looked up to and went, "Oh, they're the guys." Maybe Morphosis, who used to be Asphyxia, kind of—they were the first band we would go and sit in their rehearsal room and watch them play through proper amps, and we learned from them, you know. But um, they were about the only band around who kind of understood, I think. The connection between what bands like us were trying to do, reviving that Bathory, Venom, Sodom, Possessed kind of attitude, um, but but I don't know. It's 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 a it's a curious conundrum. With the musical and the geographical isolation, how did heavier music get there get its hooks into you? Um, well, we were lucky because we had that record shop, the Sound Cellar. Um, there was um, a. There was a TV show called uh, Sky Monsters of Rock, which was on 86, 87. We had a kind of underground bootleg um, radio show in 86, 87. Um, and that's the first time I heard like Celtic Frost and Voivod. And, but, you know, Metallica was huge in 80s. Obviously, 86, 87, 88, they played here, Slayer. So, you know, Dublin was full of subcultures. I mean, everywhere you went in the streets in 88, 89, you saw Smith's Heads, Cure Heads, you know, I went to a quite progressive open school with no uniform in between 88 and 94. And you would see, um, you know, kids with like OREM shirts, Cure, Smiths, Black Flag, um, you know, Metallica, Slayer. So it was just everything was in punk, punk rock stuff. Um, and that was back when kids identified with subcultures and counterculture, which uh, seems to be no longer. But um, so I, we were, Dublin was quite a hotbed of, you know, the first time I, 88, maybe I would have heard Susan the Banshees, the Smiths, stuff like that, alongside I and my friends, fucking death leprosy. And, you know, so there was, you were just moving cassettes around all the time as a kid, um, you know, borrowing records. And then I started my first fanzine, maybe in 89, 90. It was called Sold with another guy. Uh, and then I did a fanzine from maybe 91 to 96, my own called The Oath. I uh, did four episodes of that, issues of that, five even, maybe four or five, I don't know. And then joined the band in 91. So you just wanted to be active within a counterculture or subculture or whatever. And that's 
kind of the one of the only things that was open to you as a sort of Irish teenager in Mm -hmm. And as we both already mentioned, uh, you started with Primordial in 1991. How long were you a part of the band before the band's name was changed from Forsaken? Um, well, I mean, in the beginning, we went through a bunch of names before we settled on Primordial. It took, uh, six months of different names, Mortis, Mortus, Forsaken. Um, and then Forsaken had a song called Primordial Beginnings, um, crappy name. And then I, I just said, well, why don't we just call the band Primordial? But it was maybe February 92 or something like this. And then so that kind of stuck. Then and then it just you know it just is what it is. Um, so we were just trying to find a uh, a decent name. It was before everything was triple barreled and double barreled names. You know nobody was doing that back in um, 91, 92. So primordial just seemed to fit. So and did they start to shift from doing cover music to originals before you joined, or was that afterwards? No, like our first ever gig was maybe. It was the start of October 1991, and we were playing covers by, um, you know, Screams Behind the Shadows from Schizophrenia by Sepultura. We are playing, I think, Into the Crypts of Rays by Celtic Frost, um, something from Leprosy, um, Born Dead by Death. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure we play, might have played Venom, Buried Alive. Um, we did uh, Massacre. We, You know, we were playing covers as well and then we had i think we had one original song and then by that gradually grew to two grew to three grew to whatever and so we used to do yeah we used to do covers as well as trying to write our own songs i mean there's a seven inch in the box set of um where greater men have fallen album uh in the in the special box set which is the seven inch we never got to make in 91 with the original logo and the original old artwork and the two demo rehearsal songs recorded through one microphone in a rehearsal room in March or April 92 that would have been our demo before the demo in 93 but we just never we never thought it was quite good enough to release but I got around to releasing it 27 years later <laughs> oh, so I'm um, hungry for it too so yeah it's, it's a cool it's a cool thing to have but it's um yeah it's um you know you we, we just didn't have enough of our own songs to play a whole set and then gradually by the time we get to 93 we you know we've got like seven or eight six no let's say six seven of our own songs mixed with we're playing Bathory and we're playing Venom and stuff so um yeah so kind of mixture how did you guys focus on a black metal route with uh, folk elements well I don't really see that there is folk elements personally fair enough but that's more well it depends what you mean by that um like folk metal is kind of unfortunately a kind of dirty word um yeah. for most of the scene because that's because it became synonymous with power metal um, from the late 90s, early 2000s. Originally, if you, if you mean as in black pagan folk metal from the early 90s, which is more like Brudk, Enslaved, Nagora Bunjit, Einhuyer, Hades Almighty, then we were certainly part of that scene. But that scene came at its one foot in black metal, and it was just mixing in a kind of um, cultural element into its black metal. So, so, so if that's what you mean, then yeah, I can see that. But if you mean what folk metal became, which is more kind of like glorified power metal with furry boots. Um, certainly we don't really have anything to do with that. 
even though people who were within that scene like Primordial, and that's fine. And we know those bands. We've toured with Pintrol and Elevate and, you know, cool people. No problem there. Um, and sometimes you have to tour with those bands to show people the darker side of the, you know, the, the moon, so to speak, mm-hmm. in relation to that scene, that there is um, a dark side to all of that. But also those bands have an important place because if they do move people into a relationship with their history or culture as a stepping stone, then, you know, that's got to be a positive thing and way more positive than some kid getting into songs about fucking killing prostitutes or unicorns. You know what I mean? So um, it has a, it has a positivity to it that um, I'm not opposed to at all, but I just don't. Primordial is kind of, I could see how it makes sense for some people, but it doesn't really belong entirely in that scene. Um, Primordial basically came from the black metal scene of the late 80s, early 90s um, with a very healthy helping of doom metal in there we were Candlemass and Trouble fans and St. Vitus and Pentagram also has a huge part of the slow sound and then the early miserabilism of the Yorkshire stuff Paradise Lost and My Dying Bride and Athema those bands were playing in Ireland in 91, 92, 93 became friends of ours and they had that had quite a big impact because the same sort of miserable feeling seemed to sort of encapsulate Dublin as it did Birmingham or Leeds or Bradford or you know um, so that was kind of important but it, re- it really depends what you mean by folk metal. Um, like like I said, that early blackened pagan metal, early to mid-90s, like Enslaved or, or something, would be peers of ours or, and friends. And if that's kind of what people mean, then that's fair enough. But, you know, the, the kind of folk metal that more or less just became like Stradivarius with violins, that's not my don't have much um, relationship with that, even though, you know, we can write a chorus. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Totally. I'm actually glad that you brought up the, uh, I guess, bad rap that folk metal has, because I'm kind of the same way. Like, I'm generally pushed away from the genre because of the overuse of, like, traditional instruments and kind of the, maybe not the best term, but maybe the cheesy approach to it. It's kind of like the same as power metal in that regard. But you guys incorporate the traditional sound very well, and you also have written, I believe, on two separate tracks in Gaelic. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is, is that Primordial had never any intention of using external instruments to create the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Like, if you list, if you were to analyze the guitar playing, you know, this we're using the six eight timing one two three four five six one two three four five six. We use this timing that's very is in Irish traditional music a lot. So we um, the the chords and the um, the chords, the phrasings, and the timings. Take a song like Sunken Lungs from the last album. This owes a huge debt to Irish traditional music. Um, and for people who are who understand what they're listening for, you can hear our traditional music all over Primordial. And there's acoustic guitar in the background, like an Irish traditional acoustic guitar playing has a very specific rhythmic style that we've incorporated. But we didn't incorporate the tins and whistles and jigs and ding 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 do 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 do. Those we didn't put that in our music. Although every now and again it creeps in, like if you take a um, song like "Where Greater Men" from "Where Greater Men Have Fallen," "Born Tonight," which sounds a bit like Thin Lizzy's "Black Rose." Um, but it's all got a tinge of melancholy and sadness to it. The uplifting stuff is not really our bag, but we never wanted to have really tins and, you know, a tin whistle and flutes. And then that was not our style. We always wanted to be the other side of it, the sort of dark side of it mixed with Bathory and Candlemas and, you know, Celtic Frost or whatever. Um, so we didn't really have any interest in that. The, the, my main issue is not with the traditional instruments themselves. If you take some of those modern folk metal bands, it's the fact that the riffs are always dun, 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 dun. It's like it's like in horrible arch enemy in flames modern chunky riffing with whatever that horrible voice in then you get female vocals and it's all so formulaic and i'm just really i hate the modern 
um, you know, digitized drum sound. And so, I mean, you can find, like, you could listen to some really obscure Eastern European black metal bands. You can listen to Temnozor and stuff and find acoustic guitar parts, clean vocals and some, some songs in um, Nocturnal Mortem or something with um, fiddle and, you know, they're, they're there in other elements of it, but they just, it somehow seems more darker, more realistic, more um, blunt, but that's okay because I mean, Eloete, I mean, you know, they're playing here soon. They're, they're on tour, I think with, um, who the fuck are they on tour with Amorphous and I think Dark Tranquility are opening and yeah, you can hear Dark Tranquility in Eloete. Um, and, and that's more where that music sort of resides in that kind of arch enemy modern style riffing in flames or whatever so that's okay that's just was never going to be my thing i i didn't realize that the umbrella of folk metal could include things like song structure and timing well it depends what you mean i mean irish traditional music i mean i'm not into jigs and reels you know you it's not my thing at all but there's very sorrowful vocal singing channels there's like there's really sorrowful sad irish traditional music and it, or sometimes when you listen to traditional music underneath the jig and the reel, you'll hear specific acoustic guitar style open guitar playing. Like Primordial barely ever plays just a normal power chord. Just, it's almost all full chords. Sometimes there's different tunings. And that's very much a folk thing, um, like a, a, a traditional music thing, you know. You would have probably, you know, alternate tunings and stuff. I mean, you, but you can hear that in Led Zeppelin. So, um and certainly the timings, the phrasings, one, two, three, four, five, six. That sounds the Morrigan. That's all over Primordial. And if you listen to Thin Lizzy, you'll hear elements of that. Go back and listen to Braille with Boy Brian Down. He plays the drums. It's very rhythmic and it's very much like a bow run, which is like a handheld Irish traditional musical instrument drum that you play. Um, and he's kind of, he, he's bringing that into Thin Lizzy. And then you've got the horse lips, of course, Rory Gallagher as well. You know, you'll hear the odd thing, but Lizzy is really, the linchpin between, um, you know, heavy metal and Irish traditional music. Listen to a song like Black Rose. Um, uh, you know, I mean, Thin Lizzy, one of the greatest bands of all time, without a doubt, and an influence on us, no doubt about it. But you can hear, you'll hear what I mean. If you play Black Rose and then play Bored Tonight by Primordial one after the other, you'll go, oh, okay. And it wasn't done intentionally, but it's quite a big helping of Lizzy. Um, but there's no problem with that. It's quite beautiful, actually, to kind of, you know, kind of show um, your influences and inspirations in that way. But it is specifically Irish traditional music phrasing, timing, movements. So, and but maybe if you've got that from, if you have a band, a traditional band from, you know, pick a different English folk music, for example, there's different kind of alternate tunings and different kind of elements to it. Um, all indigenous folk music will have different instrumentation and different um, phrasings. It just depends how you want to incorporate in, it into. You know, you can hear lots of. Only yesterday, I was listening to cool uh, black metal bands from Morocco. Um, uh, I'm really interested in all sorts of metal from the, you know, kind of um, outside of Europe. And these these North African bands were incorporating stuff from their their time signatures, their phrasings, their notation scales. Um, yeah, for interesting stuff. So that's just the one that we have, which is Irish traditional music. So um, anybody who wants to listen to the Chieftains. Um, or take a song like The Calling from the EP, The Burning Season, um, and then listen to The Chieftains, a song called Morning Jew, um, and you'll hear, oh, okay, this is something similar. And that's that's the influence of Irish traditional music. Um, sorry, long answer again. <laughs> I like the long answers. How did you get exposed to the North African black metal bands? I have most, I've just recently discovered that that's a thing. Um, I, it's a, you, I'm always looking around and taking a look at YouTube videos and watching 
um, you know, metal bands and playing in. I like watching live clips of bands playing in unusual, for me, unusual countries. Uh, so I was watching only the other week, getting into this like Botswana death metal scene and uh, South African bands and seeing if they can. You know, I'm really curious. How do they? How you travel? How you tour? Setups? What you know? The, I'm just talking to this dude from Morocco there, and I was just like, okay, so you're playing, and but is there metal bars? Is there rock bars? How how open is it with depending on the government? Sometimes not, sometimes more open. Can you play? Could you go to Mar Morocco and play in Agadir, Casablanca, and Marrakesh? Could you do a three-day tour? I'm just my brain. I'm just really fascinated with geography, the political systems that allow for countercultures to exist, and um, that kind of thing. So I'm I'm interested from a political kind of point of view as well. So it's not you know I'm um I'm I'm kind of more fascinated with what surrounds it necessarily than wanting to listen to every single band, but just to know. You know, whenever you're in a, in a different country, or um, I'll always try and be on the lookout. You know, if you're walking the streets of Phnom Penh or something, looking for a, a punk rock black and white flyer and and go, oh, what the fuck? Okay, there's a Cambodian DB band playing. I'm going to go to this show and just go, you know, because I, I like being in, I like, you know, traveling to um, all sorts of places and stuff. So it's, I think it's just a, a sort of politi socio political sub-anthropological um, interest in um, how subculture or counterculture th it, it thrives or can exist in genuinely um, in under regimes or genuinely under countries which maybe have a um, it, just where things are a bit more difficult oh, I'm, I, you know that's that's real rebellion if you want to call it or whatever so definitely like you touched on earlier how um Ireland was ripe for that kind of stuff because of discontent with the church and state and as well as being a poorer country. So it's no wonder that some of these uh, other countries now have budding metal scenes. Yeah. And, and that's what you find. I mean, look at, you know, metal in Iraq and stuff, that band who moved to New York and um, yeah, metal seems to be the choice of um, the kind of musical choice of um, kids who want to identify with subculture. And you watch that documentary metal in Iraq and just, it's quite inspiring to watch how, the, the shit they go through to just put on a gig and I've been in gigs in I've been in gigs in Honduras and um, El Salvador and Guatemala and stuff as well as you know all over all over the world and in South America and stuff and you go okay we we do take some shit for granted mm -hmm. and especially now especially now it's put into close into much more scrutiny post pandemic where it's clear that a percentage of people who were going to gigs four or five years ago have just given up they're just like meh no I'm not bothered anymore. Um, and that's kind of how your scene dies, you know, that's how if your city was once a weekend destination for bands on tour and it's now moved to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you go there on a Tuesday and it's like, fuck, there's 62 people here or 40 people. Very soon it's going to drop off the map completely. Um, but I understand we're in the middle of a kind of complicated energy crisis situation in Europe. But there are a percentage of people, I think 10, 15, 20 percent of people who post pandemic, I don't think are coming back to social situations. Um, they're content now to sit at home, drink a glass of wine and watch YouTube, I think. So anyway, it's a rather, I'm not sure those two points are completely connected, but you, you understand <laughs> what I mean. Well, I mean, that whole COVID thing blew everything apart. I mean, people's personalities changed, people's uh, habits changed, and now like getting some people back into socializing with others is, is like pulling teeth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I started the podcast a week or two after the lockdown started. And, um, you know, um, it was my form of therapy part of to to deal with the situation um and yeah some very interesting dark unauthoritarian um impulses came out in 
um, people. And, you know, you quickly realized um, the percentages in society, the people who are actually skeptical, questioning, curious, maybe were only 10 or 15 percent. 10 or 15 percent were floating voters willing to be convinced or unconvinced. And then 50, 60 percent of people. What's that? J.K. Mencken says um, the average man wants to be kept safe rather than being free or whatever it was. I realized like, oh, OK, people will just accept what's handed down to them by state and institutions of state um, without question. And so faced me at odds with <laughs> an awful lot of people and also an awful lot of the metal scene who I found out just paid lip service to the word rebellion or um, many people within it um, handed over their rational and critical thinking of the situation um, through fear and propaganda, which I still believe. So, and then I realized like, you know, my name pops up on forums here and there. My friend <laughs> always sends them to me and goes, yeah, they're mentioning you in terms of anti this and anti that. I go, look, it's just quite extraordinary how conformist so much of the metal scene is in that just holding up your hand to go, I have a question about what's happening. Um, people were just so angry at you for even just non-conforming to the, um, you know, the, the narrative. And as I said to you know, people at the time, um, unfortunately for you, I have historic history on my side. When have the powers of, <laughs> when have the powers that be, the, the 1%, whatever you want to call them, when have the institutions of um, state and governance ever cared about you specifically? And the answer is, I can give you a hundred reasons off the top of my head where they've sent your kids to, to meaningless wars, being blown up in the desert, poisoned your kids through, you know, whatever. Pfizer was the most sued company, I think, in the history of the world prior to this. People don't, didn't want to hear factual arguments. They wanted to roll with their emotional reaction to things. Um, and, you know, I don't think there should be any amnesty, morally or intellectually, for anyone who was calling for their neighbours to be put into camps because they you know, they didn't, they believed that the system was coercing them into, you know, something that contravened the um, Nuremberg um, code, you know, which clearly states that it's up to you what you put in your body. So, you know, um, no one wanted to think rationally and critically. Nobody wanted to question generally the authoritarian measures of state and governance. And I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of people who don't listen to Primordial anymore because some of my opinions, which were skepticism is the only rational perspective. And if you aren't skeptical, you aren't rational. That's just how I view every single thing. So to be skeptical of the motives of, um, you know, state and governance, to me, to not be, it means you aren't thinking. And it's not to say everything is we can ascribe to malice, because that's untrue. But because I certainly believe that we can't describe everything to malice, what we can to incompetence or whatever the phrase is. Um, but... Um, certainly people lost their fucking minds and, and they, they, they lost their ability to, I think, think skeptically and rationally on some of it. And they also lost the ability to understand that other people were entitled to another opinion. I mean, so I'm a sort of free, I'm a free speech absolutist, you know? Yeah, exactly. It just seems like some people are so against that free speech aspect that they, they want to follow the narrative being set out for them. But now it's interesting to see the shift in the, like the pendulum swinging back the other way where people are starting to distrust the media. They're starting to see what the governments have been doing and what they've been up to. And now that the magnifying glass is kind of, uh, I guess, a little bit more accessible to a lot of people, I've noticed a shift the opposite way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once the hysteria and the dust has settled, I mean, look, the, you know, the, um, the, 
what shall we call it, the daily excess mortality rates in the West run between 9 and 15% greater than usual. What's that? All the people who um, don't want to hear these things, they need to consider what lies they were told. I mean, look, I, I think and we've also seen all the studies that show that lockdown did absolutely nothing. And all it did was encourage authoritarian impulses in our in unelected um, um, technocratic institutions who have uh, our, an interest in creating a Chinese social currency style system. Um, it's clear there is no, you can hide your head in the sand if you want to, but it's clear that um, the disaster, a disaster, there was, you know, disaster capitalism at the time. Many people profited um, off what happened during lockdown. Um, no one can tell, I mean, now we're in the middle of an energy crisis and it's like, okay, print trillions of dollars and lock the world's economy down for two years and interrupt all sorts of food and supply chains and then blame it squarely on Putin. Come on. It's just, of course... Again, it's all, there's so much, you know, politics has become such performative theatre. Um, I understand people, when like, if you have an emotional relationship to what happened in lockdown, to now go after two and a half years to quietly go to yourself, oh, maybe I was being played a bit. That takes a lot of guts because we live in a world where doubling down is seen as a virtue, where being the greater person who can admit that maybe you were emotionally manipulated takes quite a lot of guts to say to your mate, yeah, man, sorry about that. I think I fucking... I think I was, I, I got played. That takes, that, it used to be um, something of a virtue to be able to change your mind if you had access to that information and facts, which allowed you, the growth, to accept another point of view, which is part, which is what Agitators Anonymous is about. And what people who criticize it don't really realize because they've never really listened to it, is that I try and put both sides of the argument. Now, it's clear what my opinions and biases are generally, but I do try and level it at both sides and always kind of have a kind of an understanding that when everything becomes so emotionally charged I get it but that's why I prize a kind of stoic view of the world an unemotional unattached view of the situation I think is was needed by some people who became far too engaged in shilling for um, states you know shilling for multinational corporations I mean how did it happen where it became the thing for the, you know, um, people who would pretend to be, you know, liberal or progressive to be end up, you know, um, being instruments for multinational corporations. And I, I think that's true of the metal scene as well. People we know within the metal scene, famous musicians across the metal scene, um, you know, telling us what we should and shouldn't do apropos what they're. Um, you know, what unelected multinational companies were. Yeah. Just became a sad, rather sad state of affairs that nobody was able to say something um, to, to, to allow sort of critical analysis to take both points of view on board. Um, and if, look, if you're, if you're sticking up for, as I said, unelected multinational technocratic and pharmaceutical companies, you're bound to be on the wrong side of some form of the argument. And it's nothing to do with the efficacy of vaccines. It's just, it, it could just be to do with the bottom line. It can be to do with patents on, you know, um, yeah, just like patents on the, the medical process or whatever. So I'm getting, I'm telling blah, blah, blah. So I'm going <laughs> back to where <laughs> a year or two ago, I also get the fact, I also totally understand that people are tired of all of this shit and they just want to fucking try and get on with their lives and not be lurching from crisis to crisis. 
I totally get that. And so people switch off when I start talking about this stuff. But they have to, you should try and make a separation between what is my opinion and what's primordial's opinion. They're different things. This is agitators, anonymous stuff coming out. But again, it's just about trying to be skeptical. But I know that there's people who won't listen to what I just said and will just, the idea that you're somehow speaking out, they just go, well, you must be on the side of all these other people that I've decided that I don't like. But that's not, that's untrue. You can just, you know, you can just, you can hold the middle ground, be politically homeless, whatever you want to say. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> There's a lot of different topics in there. I'm glad that you touched on the fact that people kind of just want to stick their head in the sand and get on with their lives because it seems like there's so much to pay attention to. And if you're constantly looking yeah. into the next political issue or what's going on in the world, there's not going to be a lot of time to learn and understand every aspect of it. So people are obviously going to take what the media says as truth sometimes. It just seems now like that there are just so many outlets for it. So you can look at basically any any source and find something different or something that suits your belief. Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is, is and I don't ask people to think like I do. I mean, and look, I've had, I had, I had like fights with friends of mine um, during the lockdown pandemic. And they were like, look, this is just what we have to do. We have to trust the health, the health officials. If we don't, there'll be chaos. And also lots of my friends with kids who have to, they, they have to have faith that the world might be a better place for their kids. I, I get that. And also they, they're tired. They've got shit to do. They're trying to bring kids to school. They're homeschooled. They don't want to listen to me talking about about geopolitics. And that's also my failing as well for being too intense about some of that. But you know, people who uh, you kind of had to have a bit, little bit, a little bit of both. I was asking for a couple of percent of my friends' rational thinking. They were going, "We'll give it to you, but stop being a cunt." Or, you know, or you understand our lives are very different. And I, I can't do the level of um, digging into some of these things that you can. And I, I put, put on the news. I'm tired. I'm just I totally get it. I totally get it. So I'm not I'm not unsympathetic to the idea that it's fucking complicated at trying to get on top of all these things. And what is a veritable news source? What is what isn't? Um, and also just that I think that. Um, we're moving into an age, what the pandemic and lockdown proved, I think, to institutions of state power, technocratic governance, whatever you would call it, is that a world for them that's maybe easier to control is one that is constantly on edge, on a st in a state of fear. And I think that the level of relative prosperity, growth and calm that happened, let's say, from the end of the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1990, to maybe the pandemic, this era is over. This 20, 25 years of um, charitable growth of... Um, upward mobility of a new middle class across the West. Now, of course, there are countries in that period who didn't enjoy this. I, I totally respect that this is maybe a Eurocentric or Western-centric point of view. But that, that charitable period of growth, I think, has now ended um, economically. And I think that a generation of kids now will be less free than the generation before. I think our, our kids will be less free than we or our parents were almost in terms of freedom of speech or in terms of surveillance state um, intrusion into almost every part of their lives um, and if we're not careful it could become an awful lot worse I think we've been um, we sort of created a kind of gilded cage for ourselves intellectually to not comprehend the idea that things don't always get better and that I did a podcast called democracy is not the natural state of affairs or whatever the default setting that's true I mean you know I listened to a podcast by these two guys I really like a lot um, called the Top Flight Time Machine. It's just about football and stupid shit. But there was one day where they were going on about, oh, who wants free speech, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, freedom of speech is just, you, you want your right to say something terrible. 
and it was the same day the protests in Iran started. And I just was shouting at the podcast, the screen going, you stupid cunts. That's why you need free speech. Because of what's happening in Iran, not because of you in your middle class suburb of South London, who's made, who's probably a millionaire from making podcasts for the last 10 years. You stupid cunts. That's why freedom of speech is important. And because the West has become so, um, has such an, a sense of inertia, a sense of spiritual inertia, a sense of intellectual inertia that has no belief in any of the pillars of its systems, um, such as democracy or freedom of speech, it's decided that they're not important anymore. And the idea that you don't defend someone else that you disagree with right to freedom of speech, you know, whatever that Voltaire that quote is, you know, you, um, you have to defend people's freedom to speak freely of the, the, of the worst people that you disagree with, because the best disinfectant for whatever you want to call bad speech is for it to be out in the open. Hide it away and you create a cult around it. Um, but no, the idea now that so-called liberals are against free speech, they see it as, um, you know, something that they can dispense with. I mean, this is slowly destroying the pillars of our own um, civilization, culture. And I think that anyone who thinks that it will just only be um, held as something held against the people that they dislike um, needs to look back through history to realize that um, authoritarian measures come for everybody in the end. And the idea that you, you are exempt is intellectually stunted, you know. But if you're in, if you're only, if you're just part of a, let's say, a moral crusade, a moral panic, um, you know, culture war thing, um, you're only in it to win it. Don't realize that ultimately everyone loses. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you can see why um, during the pandemic and lockdown, all the things that happened were things that I've been thinking about for 20, 25 years. So my dark view of the world, it just rose above the ground to take us all under a bit. But for people who, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't want to would say everybody should think the same as I do, but people who were, people who were genuinely shocked by what happened, um, maybe this was the first time where they went, oh, right, we can be told to just stay in our houses for a kind of indeterminate period, lied about the scientific reasonings and whatever this was a shock to them it was not a shock to me at all because it just tied into my view of how the world actually kind of works or could work or can work or you know anyway blah 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 to being coming from a western culture we've been so ingrained to have these rights and freedoms where the government doesn't really intervene too much in our daily lives so that when something mm. that big comes along people are just flabbergasted they're blown off their like blown off their feet because of it yeah and I think that also, like I said, not everything is malice. Some things are just incompetence. And our health service proved itself to be incompetent. And also, you know, there is something, to be fair, um, there is also an aspect of if you're a part of our fight or flight response to, to the unknown, if you're in the jungle and you hear a rustling in the hedgerow, do you wait to see what comes out of the undergrowth or do you fucking run? And so I understand uh, from some health officials the idea that, like, oh, we need to do everything possible because I can't have debts on my watch. But in two or three years, I might be out of this job. So then I'm not accountable for it. So and because our four year political cycle encourages short termism, everybody just ran scared and adopted the most extreme measures, I think, to try and save their own skin and their own jobs. But also because people were scared, um, you know. But again, there's no reckoning, it would seem to me, for any of the people who did enact some of these measures or used false modeling um, or people who genuinely just saw it as, um, well, this is what we do to 
expedite measures of authoritarianism, which no one can tell me that didn't happen. Because even our own government in Ireland, the police have something like 25 or 30 new laws with no sunset clauses. They don't go away. You look in the UK right now, they just passed a measure about trying to stop people protesting. And all of these things were um, stealth, crept in by stealth through emergency, mm -hmm. um, moved into the statute books in an unofficial or undemocratic way. So anybody who thinks that lockdown was not used um, to expedite authoritarian measures of a further encroaching technocratic system um, of surveillance and governance, you're, you know, you can say you can you can say to me, I don't want to think about it because it's too dark. That's fine. You can't argue with me about it. It's it's objectively um, clear for anyone to see. So. And I said on day one or two of my podcast, watch what's coming. And people were like, fuck off, you know, blah, blah, blah. Two and a half years later, uh, I'm still waiting for a few apologies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, look, I, this is just how I am. This is how I'm wired up. I'm, I'm, you know, this is how my view of the world. And it's, I've often, I've always viewed the world in a kind of serious kind of way like this. And so I, I don't ask for everybody to, I think disagreement is completely healthy and, debate and confrontation about these things and i hope i'm not too um too immune to an element of intellectual and egotistical um analysis and be able to try and grow some of my ideas i go yeah all right i got that fucking wrong because also my emotional state was played as well during the pandemic try living in the middle of a big city that's completely shut down that just turns into a zombie apocalypse where you don't see anybody for months and months and um, you're trying to live within a five kilometer radius, of course you'd go a bit nuts and be a bit, you know, over the top. <laughs> so again, little bit of column A, B, C, D, E, F, whatever it is, you know, like I said, I consider myself politically homeless, so to speak. People think I'm this or think I'm that, but it's, it's not true. The truth is always in the gray area. Everything is always complicated. I don't know if that was even what you were asking me, but you know. <laughs> no, it's all good. It just seems like that everybody that you hear nowadays is either on the far left or far right. So that gray area is increasingly huge. And I think most people belong in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah they do. I mean, I think of politics as in, if you think of politics as in it, and it, um, on a, a sort of numerical system of one to nine, one being the far left, nine being the far right. The reality is, and let's say four, five, and six is where most people sit on most things. But the problem is, is that the one, two, threes have been allowed to call the four, five, sixes, the seven, eight, nines thus destroying the middle of politics, which is where most people are. 90% 90 of people mostly sit in the middle of most on an awful lot of issues. Um, but for whatever reason, our modern society has allowed people to be to claim to be ones and twos and ignore the tens of millions of dead bodies that, that what those ones and twos have piled in the 20th century. And very few people are actually eight and nines. I, I, very few people. Um, but if you're a five, you get called a nine by a one. This is how I think about things in, in a sort of mathematical percentage wise. Um, and so you like, you know, you know, you, you, you take, say, something like. Um, what's these? I should have thought about this. The great debates that you would have had. Um, in the past, you know, what's this uh, TV program, The Best of Enemies with Gore Vidal and. Um, I can't remember the name. Uh, I think from the the conservative guy, and they go on TV and batter it out for an hour or two. Um, the idea that you're not supposed to talk to a person from the supposed other side to gain consensus or compromise—that's the most dangerous thing that we're living through. 
the idea that you, you know even just hearing the words from somebody who disagrees with you is somehow constitutes violence is the perfect exemplar of an indulged society especially if you've visited countries that actually are violent and you go you know a mean tweet isn't quite the same as what's happening in a i don't know kandahar or something you know um and so we yeah we've just um we've kind of lost our minds a bit you know and the idea that um you shouldn't debate people from what you know this other side of things i think is just an incredible shortcoming but for people who believe that they're in a a culture war i guess all bets are kind of off for them because they're not really interested in discussing anything they're interested in winning and also you know the idea that if you've decided that words are violence um then that you know um then that means you don't need to speak to anybody you can see it in the you know the political reasoning where somebody will say well aren't they all fascists so that means you don't need to speak to them but you know accusing half a country of being like that it's just whatever you know it's 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 just so much so much of it has become performative um performative theater but i suppose that's because the narcissistic impulse and inf- influence of social media over the last decade has kind of um allowed people to think these things that they don't need to speak to somebody they disagree with but coming from a country like Ireland um which has deep political roots um and a very violent past um the violence stopped we could say when the two sides actually sat down around the table and spoke to each other it just seems that a lot of people are um like averse to any kind of confrontation so they think that sitting down with somebody on the opposite side of the spectrum will end in confrontation rather than a fruitful educational discussion rather than fully trying to flush out any ideas they just again bury their hand in the sand or sorry bury um, their head in the sand and shut them out yeah no i think it's probably i think it's actually probably something more primal than that i think it's something simpler i think it's more like that they um they've been taught that the other side are despicable that they're wicked that they're it's a binary choice i'm good you're evil and so therefore i don't need to debate or speak to you because your your views your opinions are evil and how can we allow evil in the world so therefore once you've made that binary almost biblical choice um you you know it it ceases to be about democracy or freedom of speech or politics or debate or the free and open expression of ideas it's it's basically about winning for your side and if winning means shutting someone down stopping them having the right to speak then you've won but i mean ultimately in the great scheme of things you've lost um unless of course you want authoritarianism um unless of course you desire a tyrant who supports your views in charge of an authoritarian system then you are winning but be careful what you wish for you know so you know purging or shutting down a platform of all the voices you disagree with um isn't isn't a victory in terms of our attempt to try and be better humans it's only encourages it encourages many people are unwitting foot soldiers for um authoritarian systems that certainly have not any interest in upholding their rights like i would say to people who've ever supported the banning or cancelling of a band i mean a shame on you but b it suits you now come back to me in a year when it when they cancel a band you like or the writer you like and go well no i didn't mean for that the system is of course far greater than you where are you in the pyramid structure of it near the bottom you think that um 
you know, such and such a writer comes to speak at your college. No, ban it. And then two years later, one you like comes around, you go, yeah, but oh no, they're banned too. And that's how it works because that suits the system, in my opinion, you know. But I also think that activism is kind of like, not only is it like a drug, but it's become, it's just a hobby for people. People, It sounds really stupid, but um, it's kind of, all there is for some young people as an, as an identification. And if you, it, it's a purpose. And if you tell to somebody, Hey, when you grow up a little bit, um, without being patronizing, your views on this will change. And you'll look back on this period and go, yeah, okay. Maybe I didn't know exactly how the world worked because I hadn't paid fucking rent yet or had a job or whatever. Um, you, what you're doing is you're kind of invalidating somebody's purpose at that moment. And they just can't have it because many people haven't got other things going on, you know? But like, you know, you shouldn't be telling the world how it exists if you've never paid fucking rent, you know, or yeah. had a job or, but then again, I don't know, maybe you're making 10 grand a month on OnlyFans. I don't know. So. <laughs> so obviously you're no stranger to social and political commentary. Um, and then you also mentioned that you kind of had like these interests for quite a long time before the podcast. So was that kind of the driving factor or partially the driving factor before starting Agitators Anonymous? Um, I had the idea in my head for Agitators Anonymous years before. I started it. Um, I look. I, the, the thing is this: anybody who knows me, I've always been like this. It's not like the pandemic made me opinionated. I was always opinionated. I always wanted. You know, I, I, I've always been interested in politics. I've been interested in culture and travel and history, and you know, I've always wanted. How should we say? Um, I'm not a very insular-looking person. I've always been really interested in world politics and geopolitics, and. You know, some people like what I say, some people don't like what I say, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've, I've just always been interested in the idea of um, the free transfer of ideas and freedom of speech, and um, but always been very interested in politics. So it was just kind of no-brainer once the pandemic and once the lockdown started, I was like, you need to get into this, you know? So, you know, people, like I said, uh, there's, a, there's a strain of conservatism. It's not, it doesn't, that's not even the right word. There's a strain in the kind of modern metal scene that doesn't want people to speak out, even though we listen to bands who all spoke out about things in the 80s. Your Dave Mustaines, your Blackie Lawlesses, your whatever. I mean, there was loads of outspoken characters in the 80s and the 90s and the 70s. People look up to bands from the 70s, whether it's Iggy Pop or fucking, you know, um, Johnny Rock. I don't know, whatever. I'm not placing myself in the same category as that, David Bowie or whatever. People, you know thinking musicians who made opinions about things and you kind of went, oh, I'm not sure I agree with that, but okay. Um, but now, because of the nature of modern social media and even in the metal scene, you found like, wow, um, you get pushback for just, um, people don't want to hear any other narrative necessarily, you know. But then again, having said that, it becomes amplified because the reality is it's just a couple of people on a forum. So maybe I'm just talking shit, I don't know. With your observations, um, with people kind of like not listening to the other side, not being as receptive to different types of feedback, is that one of the reasons that you named your podcast Agitators Anonymous? Yeah, but also my name is Alan Averill. So AA, I'm just trying to be smart and clever, you know, Agitators Anonymous, you know, Alan Averill. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, the other the other thing is that sometimes, sometimes, the, you know, elements of black humor or tongue in cheek or, you know, I do say in the podcast, don't take me that seriously, seriously enough, but not that seriously. The whole point of the podcast was to kind of make it a random scattergun um, experience that sometimes maybe had said, you know, sometimes it's just only about what's the difference between speed metal and thrash metal to make it nerdy 
um, metal stuff, a couple of interviews, a bit all over the place. And also for it to contain some views that maybe some people went, I disagree with that, but that's okay. Um, you know, for, uh, we need to have the depth of personality, I think, to go, well, I disagree with that, but well, look, that's his opinion. Um, but increasingly, I suppose, the we're living in a society that's been torn apart by the sort of, well, it's just been torn apart by social media, really, you know. Um, I mean, we've for 10 years, we've been dealing with this and, I, it, you know, it really has unwound people's minds. It's like a, it's it's just poked our lizard brains into some state of, um, I, I think, sort of agitated narcissism that um, we aren't supposed to take in this much information all the time, you know. It's making people isolated and they living through their avatars and on those terms think they can do, you know, they don't think they're living in the real world anymore. I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, the thing about it is like, I'm not unsympathetic to, um, to people who are having a hard time with it because I see the same thing in myself sometimes. So I'm quite willing to listen to the opposite point of view about lots of these things. Um, but it, it's clear, I think we're having our brains broken by this much engagement, social, you know, online engagement basically an unlimited tool but we just don't know how to harness it properly yet i think it's realistically it's it's a tool that's using we're the tools like it's using us um and it creates division and agitation and um amplifies elements um like everything like let's put it this way nothing is local anymore like like me and a friend could get together and fabricate a story on the streets of dublin um, and tag it into everyone's... Well, okay, let's put it like this. Um, when the media ceased to be... Like the old model of the media, the print media, which was you know driven by advertising and all that kind of stuff, when, all the, when that died um, and media on all fronts became about clicks, traffic and streaming, and then so therefore the way they had to report on things and editorialize changed because they realized that, you know, moderate man says reasonable thing. No one's reading that. Everything has to be pushed to its extremes to get eyes on the story, which is clicks for revenue. So we've incentivized the most extreme elements um, of society or the we've incentivized um, a form of reporting or modern media that's only obsessed with the most extreme elements of society because that's all that people look at. Like, you know, and so that this is, you know, that's destroying society. And the idea that we have no agreement anymore on what constitutes the news because your news is tailored for you mine is tailored for me but i remember watching the famine unfold in ethiopia and the news in 86 the famous news broadcast and it galvanized uh, millions of people to you know uh, live aid sending money to africa people that was a news story people agreed on and that could be happening now but you might not have seen it because it's not in your feed or i'm sure it is happening now somewhere in like say somaliland or south sudan or something would we know the same way? Not really anymore. We, have, we don't have a shared news cycle. And because news has become so partisan and editorialized, um, again, the middle area of what would constitute um, the news is, 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 being, is now binary. Here's the good and here's the evil take on the world. And um, it's destroying our ability to, I think, function as a civilized society anymore. You know, um, That's part of it. And then I think just social media the narcissistic impulses it encourages, the selfishness, the anonymity, the um, the ability to demonize 
people who you think you disagree with to the point where they cease to become human anymore. And that leads to a very dark process. People don't realize that, um, you know, where human nature will take these things. Uh, and if you think that the people who disagree with you politically in a democratic country, which has a great democratic processes are now evil. Well, if once you believe they're evil, then where will you stop to silence them? And unfortunately for anybody who disagrees with me, where this ends, just have a look at where the 20th century, where these things end, you know? It's where because one side has demonized another to such a degree that they believe that, you know, taking their lives has just become a statistic. Whatever, you know. Again, um, I don't really do small talk. <laughs> I don't really do any... I don't, I've just, I don't do interviews where, yeah, we just have recorded the drums or, yeah, I don't know who's going to win the World Cup or, yeah. It's not my style. Small talk, you know. Anyway. This is also a really interesting perspective, especially considering that you uh, have a degree in journalism. So you seeing the dismantling of that whole, I guess, profession as a whole, seeing it mm. deteriorate into what it is now, that's got to be pretty yeah. brutal. Well, it's not just, it's, journalism is a microcosm of many different walkways and walks of life and that once upon a time i think journalism used to be a blue collar um i know that's not the right a, a working class activity you've got journalists in the 60s and 70s who wanted to hold power to account and that's the nature that should be one of the nature of journalism to, to be outside the tent pissing in but modern kids who are activists journalists whatever you want to call them i think they want to be in the tent pissing out um they see working class people as the enemy or that they need to be educated um their editorializing opinion. Um, the idea that you would do investigative journalism and break a story after a week or two is gone because everything is instant. It needs to be out now instantly for clicks and everything as quickly as possible. And I think a lot of adults just left the building because you couldn't make a living from it anymore. You couldn't sell a story that had been sourced and um, investigated um, for a week or two or three. Time doesn't do that. So you got brilliant people like Matt Taibbi, maybe over on Substack, who's making a great living, but he's writing on Substack. His stories aren't on the front of the broadsheets or, you know, so what, unfortunately what's happened is that holding power to account as a journalistic um, staple or when he kind of has been moved to the only, for, uh, to the underground, only for people who are interested in seeking it out. Um, I mean, look at, you know, all the newspapers last week, Russian missile lands in Poland because of a tweet from some American senator, I think, stating exactly that. But that was before anybody knew what it, where, where it had come from. I mean, the irresponsibility of someone sending that tweet that could potentially start World War Three without knowing the facts. But everyone wants to be first. Everyone wants clicks. And of course, you're going to get that. But yeah, journalism is not the same thing as it used to be. And also because it's also it's when something when it becomes so hard to make a living from something, then you don't get professionals anymore. Like the payoff for most modern journalists is that they get to push their agenda, their activist agenda, whatever that may be. Um, that's their payoff. Or they're doing 12 different small tasks trying to get enough money. Whereas you, you used to be just a journalist who maybe was, you know, the crime correspondent for pick a region. Um, I don't think that exists anymore. So, and that's that's because of what social media has done. And the old model of journalism now states that if you have, if you have, like, look at somewhere like CNN and their audience captured, they're captured by their audience. 
um, their audience doesn't want to hear, yeah, well, maybe that guy was right about something. They only want to hear that he's a devil or she or whatever, you know. So you become captured by your audience. You're incentivized by editorializing things from the most extreme angle. So therefore it destroys, as I said, that middle ground of society. Um, and that's where most people inhabit. That's why they don't understand. They just, and that's why they tune out of the media. They tune out of, and this is, they tune out of institutions of authority because they've been lied to and who could blame them, you know? So I don't know, it's complicated. It is. And I think it's also exacerbated by the fact that we have such a fast news cycle. People don't have, journalists don't have the same ability to go and fact check the same way without having that extra pressure of getting something out right now, right, right then. So a lot of people just, like you said, send a tweet because of some information that they heard from somewhere, but there's no way to fact check it. And people just rush to conclusions. Yeah. And also people, I think what's happened is that nobody really cares if anybody lies anymore. Only if you say the wrong thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. No, you know, but nobody cares anymore. You know, vaccine will stop transmission. Not true. <laughs> but Biden said it. It ain't true. Um, you know, is anybody going, hey, hang on. Well, if that's a lie, maybe some of the rest of this is a lie. I don't know. You know, like I'm not anti-vax. I'm not anti this or whatever, but I can clearly see that like, well, that's not true objectively, you know. Um, and there are every institution of state and governance drop things like that constantly now as some form of performative theater. It's like the veil has completely been dropped from the political class. And I think they they feel that there's no even need to hide any of this, you know, Pelosi style insider trading. They just go, nah, not going to stop that. So why would we? You know, and so then you can look at all the money, all the people in the, you know, burn and you're like, what the fuck? What, what happens? There's no, no account. There's, there's never, compared to maybe it's just in my imagination, but the 50s or 60s or 70s, there doesn't seem to be the, the power of the system to hold people who abuse it to account on many levels seems to be completely dismantled because the whole thing has been co-opted. And now the power of many states are far smaller than um, the technocratic platforms that have sort of exceeded their influence, you know, when it's not states anymore that are going to the moon, but billionaires, I think tells you a lot as an allegory, a sort of allegorical sort of, is that the right word? Whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. With the rise of things like Substack and the deterioration of legacy media, do you notice things as shifting in a positive note for journalists? Um, I, I mean, I'm sure Matt Taibbi can make a really good living or Barry Weiss or whoever. Um, you know, um, it's, it's there. It, I think within reason they can make a better living, but are they getting the truth out to people in greater numbers? I'm not so sure. Because, I mean, you know, you just have to look at who funds all the biggest newspapers and the editorializing and, uh, that goes on within them. Um, I'm not saying everything is corrupt. I mean, the other thing about it is, is that the nature of Agitators Anonymous and the podcast is that I, I'm interested in that stuff. I'm not interested in the, ah, sure, it's fine. Like if the podcast was called Asher, it's grand, it wouldn't be very interesting to me. So I'm interested in this side of things, that dark side, the corrupt side. I'm interested so that I don't, that's more like where, where I'm 
talking about or what I'm focused on. So, you know, it's um, I'm, of course, much more interested in sides of journalism that are corrupt or negative or failing than the other side. Um, maybe that's just more um, a, a personal characteristic or something, you know. But Primordial doesn't isn't made in a vacuum, you know. Listen to the music, and it's people with a certain for relationship to the world who make that. It's not Hammerfall, you know. So I don't know if those two things are connected. But. <laughs> we already touched on it a little bit. You uh, graduated from Dublin City University with a degree in journalism. What are some of the skills that you that you adapt and employ uh, while doing your podcast? Uh, they're all probably obsolete by now because it was before all of this stuff that happened now. Yeah, I mean, I did journalism with a sort of angle on political science and stuff. Um, I don't know if anything I learned back then is really relevant now, other than knowing how it was and how it's changed. Um, certainly, you know, editing and recording and all that kind of stuff, but nothing quite prepares you for all the, the technological changes and platforms. Um, editing sound waves and stuff, I suppose, and trying to write properly when I do write. Um, and at least trying to be um, objective or understanding that that's a necessity intellectually, at least in as much as, you know, I'm, I'm able, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Do you still write for zero tolerance? Sometimes, not much. I don't okay. do the column anymore because that's what the podcast is kind of for. I do some stuff about you know, call from the grave about old bands' careers, look at their albums, but mm -hmm. not much, really. Um, the podcast takes up most of my time. Okay. How did you choose to do, like, the... Sorry, To the Grave, was it? Call from the Grave. Call from the Grave, sorry. Um, how did you choose to take older albums, revisit them, and kind of give them a review for fresh listeners? Um, no, well, that's just really, like, maybe you take, you take the career of Bathory or Voivod and Mark and retrospectively look at their career. Um, sometimes I do it on my YouTube channel as well. I'll take Man of War or something and go through all the records and discuss them. Um, yeah, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's just nerdy heavy metal stuff, you know. That's all stuff that we can learn. I love listening mm. to podcasts like that because I'd say overall my, my knowledge base on any kind of specific genre is quite limited at best. So this podcast is a way of me learning, but and then also listening to stuff like that. It gets me a lot, I guess, up to speed on bands that I normally wouldn't have uh, explored. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Sorry, back to the podcast here. What are some of the strategies you employ to keep your podcast running smoothly or engaging? Um, I, I don't, I mean, I try and make every week a bit different, um, uh, a bit all over the place. Um, it's a bit anarchic. It's a bit, you know, like one time I'll do something really serious about the protests in Iran and women's rights in the Middle East, maybe. And then the next one is about, you know, what's the difference between speed metal and thrash metal or... I think if people are interested in being along for the ride and interested enough in my opinions and um, the kind of off-the-cuff nature of it, they sort of allow you some leeway to go on to these different places. Sometimes I do, um, you know, like I did one episode about, the, you know, historical and uh, historical analysis of Western intervention in Afghanistan, um, you know, back to like the, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. Or then the next one will just be like, you know, 10 underrated doom death albums, or I just try and keep it interesting for myself by making it as random as possible. Um, sometimes guests, sometimes not. Um, sometimes things that are unexpected, sometimes things that are confrontational or um, difficult, um, sometimes not. Just making it random. 
Mm-hmm. Would you say that randomness kind of keeps people coming back? Like you said, you sometimes have guests, sometimes it's a it's a monologue, sometimes it's lighthearted, and sometimes it's extremely serious. Um, it it seems to judging by the numbers. I mean, the numbers rise sort of exponentially, or you know, they 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 move. So so I must be doing something right. I don't know quite what that is sometimes. And I know some episodes are better than others, but when you've done 135 or 36 or whatever, it's 140. I mean, that's natural, really. And you touched on earlier that maybe some people wouldn't listen to Primordial anymore because of your personal opinions. Have you noticed a difference in listenership for the band? No, it's hard to say because we haven't made an album in three or four years. Um, Certainly, I know anecdotally there are people who don't like what you say and it's it's altered their opinion of the band. But I mean, that's that's there's nothing you can do about that. Even even if you do interviews in the news in the cycle for an album, there will be people who don't like what you're talking about. Um, you know, and there will be people who listen to the band who have a completely opposite point of view politically. Now, what you'd hope is that people are open-minded enough and respect the idea that you you do have a freedom, that there is freedom of speech in these things. I mean, I listen to bands that I disagree with, whether it's spiritually, intellectually, politically. It doesn't. I don't care really. Um, doesn't bother me but maybe it bothers some other people but it it's ah, i mean look it's the nature of modern society is that it's it allows you know um anonymity across um chat forums where people are able to say whatever they want about somebody and also the bigger you get the more people want to talk say this or that about you but i just try and be i don't listen or pay any attention to any of that kind of stuff i well i'm aware it exists but i don't read it. i don't care um you just have to try and be at least um, honest about your approach to those things, I guess. You mentioned some not coming out with music in a little while, but I think I've read that next year you guys have a live album and a compilation album uh, ready to go. No, there's we have a live album already. There's There will be a new promoted album next year. That's the plan. Next September next year. Um, we need to get the finger out and get writing it. But um, no, there's... Um, like people say, oh, it's nearly four or five years since the last album. I go, well, see, I don't count the lockdown time because we did nothing. So to me, it's only two and a half, two and a half years old. But that's life. What can you do about that? We just did nothing during that time. And I'm not writing remotely or online or anything like this. So, Actually, I read in another interview yesterday, I believe, that you still kind of like that old school feel where you're all in one room. You're all participating. Yeah, we never, and... It's not allowed to do it any other way. Oh, good. We just don't do it. We're we're lazy as well, but you just we just don't do things like that. So um, we have to be in the room together, write the songs, argue about it, talk about it, rehearse properly. There's no file trading. There's no remote writing. It's just not what we do. So if we can't meet to do that, we don't do anything. It's very simple. So that's just how it is. I don't think heavy metal should be written. Just trading files. I think you need... It's a human process. And we. I, I personally it would just remove even more of the joy of being in a band to do it that way. So I would just not do it. Like if, if there's no movement, whether it's to be in a room with other people, to travel, to play gigs, to, to be there in recording, to be there in rehearsal, blah, blah, blah. If it's all, if, if it's a remote future, then I won't make any more heavy metal. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So it's, that's just how it is. So Primordial has to do things in this old traditional way. Um, and you know, that's what we're going to start doing very soon. So, like that approach it seems like when people are doing things uh, remotely or when they're not actually getting together and arguing it seems like it's almost formulaic and it's overproduced a lot of the time 
Yeah, and sometimes you also need other people to just tell you you're being a fucking fool, and that's a stupid idea. <laughs> um, and, and I mean that about everything. I mean that about, you know, like, this is the thing, you know, when you're remote working, you're remote living, you're remote everything, you're often there's nobody sitting there going, come on, man, really? That's fucking bullshit. And I, I can see that myself as well. You need your mates in the office, in the bar, in the band, in the team, in the sport, whatever it is that you do with other people, you need people to hold you to account for your bullshit. You need, like, we, we're not meant to be inculcated into this sort of um, remote, um, sort of propagandized um, way of living, which is sort of like a kind of stay inside to save the world sort of bullshit. Um, it will just create terrible human beings as we just lay atrophying in our fucking chairs with our Oculus Rift goggles on. And it's just, it's going to encourage an element of humanity that I think in 10 years could be pretty, pretty dark to say the least. Um, but will serve technocratic institutions of, un, you know, unelected power quite, um, it will serve them quite well to have a generation of people who just want to stay inside and never go out. Um, so I, I rail against anything that tries to remove the human process. I'm like an analog man in a digital world. So, um, and, and you need, you know, because we're all prone to just being fucking flawed morons. Um, and myself, a lot of the time, like, you know, I have my oldest friends and people like, I'm going to play football now shortly. Um, and it's important to be on a team, have people reliant on you showing up. Um, and that's that human interaction of the sports team, which is different to the music thing, the whatever, the what you know, you we we'll need all those things. Sorry, I'm sounding like a self-help guru now, but we need all those things to keep us on the fucking mental straight and narrow. We go insane, which is part which is part of what's happening in the insanity around us because we, we we're missing. You know, some people going, "Come on, man, what the fuck are you talking about?" So, but um, yeah, it's it's. I'm just sort of against any kind of anything that promotes remote. Um. I mean, you know, I understand if you sit in traffic all day, the idea of remote working, fair enough. Um, but when it's something even more profound than that, which is trying to push the idea that um, we're removing the human process from everything, you know, like Promodio will never do a live stream gig to no one. Never. I, I'd rather we won't do things like that. Um, and so, you know, when the climate lockdown comes, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I got to go soon, man. Sounds good. Uh, to wrap things up, do you mind just telling me some of your favorite genres of music and then some of your favorite bands? That was a joke, by the way, the climate thing. People get very annoyed at me because I keep poking, <laughs> cli I keep poking climate um, change people sometimes. Um, you know, I don't disagree with the tenets of the conversation, <laughs> but sometimes um, oh, it doesn't matter anyway. What, say, what was the question? <laughs> uh, what are some of your favorite genres of music and who are some of your favorite bands? Well, I think it's no secret what my favorite metal bands are. Um, outside of that, outside of metal... Um, Born Under Club of Gore, um, Nick Cave, Leonard Cohen, The Cure, Bauhaus, Pink Floyd, Joy Division. Um, I like soundtrack and classical music. Um, Woven Hand, 16 Horsepower. Um, yeah, that's kind of some of the things that I like that wouldn't be metal. Um, I generally have no Outside of like rock and roll, like ACDC or Wasp, I have no um, easy listening uh, or 
I don't like any pop music. I have no time for anything like that. No time for any light relief at all. I mean, my answer to most people when they say, oh, don't you don't like the Pixies? And I go, no, I like Infernal War. Um, <laughs> I'm just not interested in any of that kind of stuff. I'm not interested in, oh, that's a nice tune. It's got to be, unless it's like Wasp or, you know, ACDC or something, Motorhead or something. But that's, that's got to uh, do it. So, no, I have no time for middle of the road pop or indie music or anything like this or i don't like i don't have any guilty secret where i sit and listen to modern pop music um, i don't like hip-hop i don't like i like all country western you know uh, old country western i mean who doesn't like johnny cash but you know stuff like that um now generally it's got to be um dark or aggressive or difficult or you know it's, it's fits in with all the things I've just been saying for the last 90 minutes. <laughs> no, my, the best, the best, the, my favorite band from the last 20 years is probably Woven Hand. Okay. Awesome. I'll definitely check them out. Alan, I want to thank you again for joining me today. I know you got a, such a busy schedule, so I appreciate this opportunity. No problem, man. No problem. It's taken a while to organize. And um, yeah, just let me know when it comes out and I'll make sure I can uh, send it to people so as I get canceled. And <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time on Gyro Nation Metal. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. The podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider checking out my Patreon. Thank you.